Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and I will be your guide as we look at the core systems of our society, that of government, money, and education. Today, we are going to focus on government. This will be our first standalone episode on government, and it will involve the origins of where government came from, how did that organization come about, and what were some different types and philosophies associated with it. So we'll start with what the role of government is, and we will move on to how governments came up out of human interaction, and then we will look at specific types of governments that occurred early on and kind of how those evolved and we will look at the pros and cons of those. Then we will move into um, some more political philosophy of what people thought about government in general and ruling in general, um, mainly in ancient Greece. So that's where we're going. And let's begin with what is the role of government? I think the best place to begin would be with our rights as human beings because I think all of us would agree that government's role is to protect our rights as individual human beings. And so, although we can't really get into specific morals and ethics, because a lot of people have a lot of different opinions, a lot of religions say different things, we're not going to get into all that, but I can say that there are three basic rights that I believe we all inherently have as human beings. And so the first right that I believe we all have is that to life. We all have the right to live and for that not to be infringed upon. And we have the right to make choices with our lives the way that we see fit. We also have a second right of liberty And that would involve those choices that we make, that our choices are our own, and we are free to make them, and that we should not be oppressed by anyone else. We should be free, and liberty is a right of all of us as human beings. The third right that we all have is that to property. So as a human being, if I personally create something, or if I earn something or trade or pay for something, whatever that thing is, is my property. If I created a sculpture, that sculpture is my property. No one else has any right to that. I own 100% of the rights to that property. There is one case worth mentioning that is a little different, and that would be that of children. So technically, children do have all the rights that the rest of us adults have, and they have them fully. However, a portion of the responsibility of those rights and some of the powers over those rights are temporarily controlled by the child's parents. So the parents are the ones that are going to be looking out for the child's property, the child probably is not going to be able to or be willing to um, take care of it the way they should or protect it the way that they need to. Same with a child's life. If a child's life is in danger, the child probably doesn't understand or put himself in that situation through rebellion 
or may not be able to defend himself if it's somebody else that's attacking them. So their life and their right to their life and protection of that life needs to be partially in the hands of the child's parents or caretakers, whoever's in charge of that child. And the same could apply to a child's freedoms and their liberty. It's the same way. You don't want, on one hand, their freedoms to be infringed on by anyone else. But on the other hand, the interesting aspect is that a parent necessarily has to infringe upon some of the liberties of the child in order to make sure that the child will have access to all their rights and be in a good condition when their time has come. So at some point, the child will reach what's generally considered an age of accountability, and this can vary depending on your religion or your country or your local customs or your specific family. Everybody treats this differently and gives access to the full amount of a child's rights to that child at different times and to different extents and in different ways. So we all have these rights, a right to life, a right to liberty, and a right to property. So as we look at government, we will be looking at government through that lens. These are the assumptions that I'm going to base all of our study on. Another aspect of our rights as humans is the fact that we all have equal rights. We are not necessarily all equal per se. Everybody has different skills. Everyone has a different level of intelligence, of creativity, of empathy. We, we are not equal as individuals, but we do all have equal rights. We have an equal right to life. We all have an equal right to liberty, and we all have an equal right to property. And those should never be infringed upon by anyone else because we all have the same rights to these things as individuals. So moving on to the first aspect of government we will look at, that is the origins of government. Where did government come from? So to begin with, people in general, went around as family units or as loners. They lived off the land. Sometimes they would travel in groups, and oftentimes it was a lot of foraging or hunting, and that's kind of how people lived. That was the situation people were in. And so we're trying to figure out how did we go from that to actually having cities and societies and governments? Like, how did that process happen? Well, the first theory on the evolution of government and the origins is that of an evolution from family roles. So in a typical family, especially as we go back to more ancient times, there was a strong view that the father was the leader, and the father was the decision maker, the protector, the provider. And so that was the role of the father. Everyone in the family had a different role, and the role of the father was to be the leader. And so we can kind of easily see how as a family would grow and a typical family, say there's a father and a mother and multiple children, well, as those children grow up 
and they begin to pair off and have children of their own, some of those families, those new families, would choose to leave and be their own family and, you know, carry on and do whatever they're going to do and go their separate ways. But others would probably choose to stay with the group. Probably many would, and many would just stay with their families and the groups would grow. So as that happens, you have the father, the eldest father now, who is still in that leadership role, but now it's not only of his spouse and his children, now it's also of his grandchildren. And his leadership role will, in some ways, supersede that of his son, even though his son has a leadership role over his son, and so on and so forth. So we can see how this role of a father in a family unit can get expanded to that of being a leader of a group. So as these groups would maybe join together or grow larger and larger, they oftentimes would need some direction. There would be a dispute or there would be a decision to make and someone has to make it. So typically it was not a majority rules vote. It was more that the most respected leader in that group would make that decision. And hopefully he would make it with the input of everyone that he was in charge of and everyone that he was responsible for, but ultimately he would make that decision. And so that is one theory of the origins of government as we know it, is that it started through this role of the father in a family unit and these family roles that existed. And that dynamic then grew into a more formal leadership role and a more formal government. So the second theory is that of force. So on one hand, you would need, if you were a group of individuals or families or tribe, you would need the ability to protect yourselves. There may be other tribes after your things, or there may be animals or who knows what. There are many different dangers, especially before we had cities and strong buildings and all of these types of things. And so you would need to be able to apply force to a given situation. Um, protection is probably the most obvious. In order to do that and to organize in such a way that you can put up a strong enough resistance, you generally need a leader or leaders. You need people or a person who would make the judgment calls that would need to be made and make the decisions that have to be made in those types of situations in order to effectively protect yourself and protect your group. Um, the other side of the force theory is probably actually the more prominent, and that would be that of applying force to others. So as you had a group of individuals that were foraging and hunting, and especially as you started to get more into agricultural societies and people began to plant and keep livestock and breed them instead of roaming around, as this began to be more popular, it was so tempting for a group to join together. And instead of dealing with all this and growing food and foraging, hunting, all this, you know, 
it, it's a pain. It takes a lot of time. It's difficult, blah, blah, blah. Instead of doing that, why don't we just all group together and just take the stuff from these guys over here? And so that's what they would do. That happened quite often. And there are examples back to the earliest fossils that we have of groups of people where there are records and fossils of one group of people being slaughtered by another group of people. And it would seem, at least, that the reason for this is so that they could take their stuff, their property, their food. And that was common. And that's an obvious thing that people would think of, of course, because it's always going to be easier to take something that someone else has already worked for instead of having to work for it yourself. So this, like having force for protection, this also requires leadership. This requires organization. This requires someone to make the call on who to attack, what food to take, what to do with the people, on and on and on. These are judgment calls and decisions that work best when you have a leader or a group of leaders. And so out of this dynamic of force, whether it be force to repel in defense or force on the offensive side, there is still this dynamic that rises up of a group forming together with a more organized government, you can say, of leadership. The third theory of how government came to be is that of a social contract. So especially as we're talking about now where you have these agricultural societies, as people started settling down more and more, that's how you developed towns and villages and cities. This all came up out of the agricultural lifestyle. So as soon as people began to stay in one place and farm and raise livestock and these types of things, they needed some more permanent lodging. They would need permanent houses, and since they were going to be in one location, that one location may not have everything they need. So they might have groups of people that would go out and get other things that they don't have access to, or as other groups would come by, they might trade with them and barter with them and get the things that they don't have. And so as these different dynamics started to work together and these people started to build these relationships together, you started getting these more formal, let's say, cities. And as this comes up, with the social contract theory, we have this issue where you have lots of people all living together and all needing to work together and get along. So it is within everybody's best interest to agree to a certain set of rules to a certain form of leadership and to agree to submit to certain decisions because this allows people to live together and interact together and trade with one another. But these people wanted to have someone they could go to to settle a dispute. They wanted someone who would watch out for the community as a whole because if I'm a farmer, or if I am raising livestock, or if I'm a craftsman, uh, none of these roles are people who would necessarily be looking out for the good of the protection of the city, for example. Now, everyone would benefit from the city being protected, and we all want it to be protected, 
but none of us necessarily is going to take it upon ourselves to do the planning and the organizing and all the things that need to happen. And if we, even if we did, if we did this as individuals, it might not be as efficient. It might not be as effective. So it is more beneficial to have this social contract of having specific people in charge to do these things, to make these plans, to make decisions, to settle disputes, things of this nature. And so out of this comes a government of sorts. And so these are the three main theories that are generally put forth for how governments came to be. And they probably are all accurate. They probably all happened at different times with different people groups. And often, I would venture to say, they probably happened one after the other, uh, maybe in different orders at different times. But it is just, it's natural for the family role of the father to expand as a group expands. It is natural to want to apply force to another group to take their stuff, if that's easier. Just like it's natural to want to form a leadership and organization within your community to keep people from being able to take all your things. And it's also natural to have agreements with one another to give up some of maybe some of your rights and give up some of your roles within the society in order to have a specialized and focused group that will make decisions and plan for the community as a whole and things of this nature. So these probably all did happen and they probably all contributed to creating governments. Now, moving on to the next part that we will look at, we are going to look at the types of governments. So to begin with, early on, probably the most common form of government was the monarchy. And we see this does have ties from the family roles that we talked about before. A monarchy would be an absolute ruler whose power and role would get passed along through their family. It was hereditary. And so, say there was a king of a land, he would be the absolute ruler of that land. And when he died, typically that was the way it happened, is they died. They didn't usually just pass along their their throne to their next in line. Usually they held on with all their might. But when they did die their next in line. Usually their eldest son would take the throne and take over and they would be in charge. And this would go on and on and on. So there have been multiple kind of forms of monarchies over the centuries, really. Typically, to begin with, a lot of early civilizations had absolute monarchies, which is just like it sounds. Um, The monarch had absolute power. And although typically this was a male role, and these were men that ruled, there are plenty of records, um, even back in ancient civilizations, where you had the women that stepped into these roles. And although this wasn't the most common practice, there are records from ancient Egypt and ancient Babylon that show women in these leadership roles ruling over a society and a civilization. So, The absolute monarchy is the most common and the first. That kind of evolved in a lot of places into a more limited monarchy, where you had the monarch 
who would share some of their power and responsibility with another group of people. This was usually the nobles in the land. So usually the wealthy landowners who had a lot of political sway as well as sway over their specific local regions. And they would control some things and the monarch would be in control of the majority of things. But there was a sharing of power there, and that would be considered a limited monarchy. Now, the next form, and the last one we'll look at, is a more modern form, and that would be that of a constitutional monarchy. And so, with a constitutional monarchy, you have the monarch, who is in charge, but they are subject to a specific written constitution. So they do not have absolute control. They can't do whatever they want or order whatever they want. They have to work within the limits of the Constitution. Now, this can be a very broad Constitution where there are very few limits on the monarch's power um, that has happened and existed. Or this could be a very specific and detailed Constitution that leaves the monarch with very little actual power and puts them in more of an maybe influential role in the civilization or the nation or community, whatever situation we're looking at here. This is more like modern times. There are still kings and queens that do exist in today's world, but most of them are under a constitutional monarchy and hold very little actual power as far as running the government is concerned. Now, there are still kings and queens that hold a lot of power in a lot of countries. These are usually more third world countries. But typically, in the more recent eras, we have this constitutional monarchy where the constitution is fairly strong and detailed and restricts the monarch. So in a monarchy, there are some advantages as well as disadvantages. Now, I'm going to start with the disadvantages because we're probably more familiar with those. And that would be that, you know, the ruler would get this power lust and kind of take over. And instead of doing what's best for their citizenry, they more just do whatever they want. And they get as much power as they can. They get as much wealth as they can. And they don't really care about the little people, about the peasants. Because, you know, why should they? They're the ruler and they should get all the praise and all the honor. Um, There are plenty of examples where monarchs claimed deity and that they were the gods and they were to be worshipped and they took it to an all new level. And so this is a disadvantage of a monarchy because if you get a bad ruler and some of them have been very bad throughout history, they have all the power, especially in an absolute monarchy. But Even in a more limited monarchy and a constitutional monarchy, to a degree, you have these issues where if you get a bad monarch, you're kind of screwed because this is the one person that has the most power in your government. So big disadvantage. It is very centralized and therefore carries with it a lot of risk because it really depends on who you have in power. Now, over to the advantages of a monarchy. One of the biggest advantages, and the one I'll focus on, is that of ownership and incentives. So, a monarch 
owned the territory that they were in charge of. Let's call it a nation. They own the nation. They own the land. They own the government. They are the ones in charge of all the laws. They, in a sense, own the entire nation. It is their property, and it is their property to be handed on to their next in line, typically their son. And that property of this nation and the throne is to be handed on and on throughout their family line through the generations. And so with this being the case, the monarch is incentivized to take care of that nation and their people and their resources because it's something that they're going to pass along to their son and they want to pass along the best inheritance they can. Typically, we're talking about, you know, decent parents here and most of them actually were. So although we usually hear about the bad ones, there have been plenty of great monarchs over the centuries who did wonderful jobs and were loved by their people. And oftentimes this is partly why. It's because they they owned the nation and all the land and all the resources and they were passing it along to their family. They wanted to have a good reputation. They wanted posterity. They wanted a successful nation. And in order to do that, you know, they would be incentivized to run the nation well. It's kind of like the example of who is going to treat a house better? Who's going to take better care of a house? Is it the renter or is it the landlord? Well, obviously, it's the landlord. The landlord owns the house. They are the ones paying for the repairs. They are the ones that hold on to it long term. The renter doesn't really care. They're only there for a little while, then they're moving on, and it's not their place. And so this is one of the advantages of a monarchy is that they are the landlord of the nation, and so they are incentivized to treat it well. They don't want a revolt or a rebellion because that would take away what they own and what they're passing on to their family. And they also don't want to use up all their resources or waste money or men in pointless battles and wars for territory that they don't really need because in general that's going to wear down your nation it's going to wear down the inheritance you're passing on it's wearing down your property that you want and that you are keeping for the long term so you are incentivized to do well as a monarch so those are kind of the two flip sides of a monarchy The next type of government we are going to look at is that of a constitutional government. Now, we did refer to this a little bit with the constitutional monarchy, but a constitutional government can take many forms. Um, It can be implemented in many different ways in a democracy, in a monarchy, in really any form of government you come up with. So with a constitutional government, you have what's known as the rule of law, and this means that the laws set forth and the rules set forth with this constitution and in this constitution are to be obeyed and to be followed no matter what. And it is this law that really rules. And with this, the constitution supersedes the ruler or the rulers. So the nation is governed more by this constitution than it really is by whoever's in charge. 
whoever's in charge is always going to be subject to the laws set forth in the Constitution. Now, as we look at advantages and disadvantages, the advantages are obvious. This puts a check on power. We talked about the disadvantage of a monarchy is all the power they had and all the havoc that can be wreaked because of that. Well, in a constitutional government, that power is checked, and it can be checked significantly depending on the constitution that you have. And so this is a major advantage that you can have a check on the power and on the rulers. The other major advantage is you can set forth how your country is to be governed from the very beginning, and it does not matter who takes charge, your country will always be governed this specific way. You don't have to worry about the tides and the whims of the masses and whims of different rulers that come in and out of power, because so long as it is still a constitutional government, it will always function the way the Constitution dictates that it should. Now, there are some disadvantages, and one blaringly obvious disadvantage of a constitutional government is that a constitution can change. So that kind of just cancels out all those advantages I just said. But uh, changing constitutions in this form of government is rare, I admit. But there is this risk that whoever is in charge of the constitution and making amendments to it or changes to it has the power to make amendments and changes to it. And that's a problem. That's a disadvantage. Because if that power lies in the hands of the king, then if the king wants to do something, but the Constitution doesn't allow it, the king can just change the Constitution. And then he's allowed to do whatever he wants to do. Um, So generally what happens is this power over the Constitution is given to representatives or a ruling class of some kind or distributed to the people or whatever. But that still doesn't get rid of the problem because what if the general people, the general public, decide that they don't like how the Constitution is right now and they want to change it? Well, they can. Same with any other group that you put in charge of this process, whether it be elected representatives or an oligarchy, it doesn't matter because the Constitution is going to be able to be changed. Even if the Constitution is originally written, and in giant, bold letters at the end, it says, this Constitution may never be amended or changed or ratified or any other alterations may be done to it, it doesn't matter because in the end, people do change, and they change their minds, and they can be influenced, and that Constitution, I'm sorry, but it could be changed. This is a very bad thing about a constitutional government. But in general, this doesn't happen, so generally constitutional governments are looked on very favorably. Um, Moving on to the next type of government, that would be a democracy. So this is the form that is praised nowadays as being the most modern and the best and the ideal form of government. And it has been looked on that way in many other times. Um, Ancient Greece had multiple democracies as well. So in a democracy, you have representatives that are voted on and elected by the people. Now, which people are voting and being represented does change depending on what society you're talking about. But 
Like, if we look at modern times, it's generally all the citizens of a nation. However, maybe in other societies, it could have been all the people that owned land or that were of a certain class or whatever. The point is that the representatives are voted on and they are elected, and you do have a small group of people that run the government and that make decisions in the government, but who are beholden to the people. And so this also puts a check on the power that runs the nation, just like a constitutional government would put a check on a monarchy, if you have a constitutional monarchy. It's the same way with a democracy. A democracy can ensure that the will of the people will always at least be considered. So the advantage is that the will of the people will be considered and that you have a check on power and government and that the people being governed actually have some representation in that government itself. These are great advantages. The disadvantages are focused around the fact that the people are the ones making a lot of the decisions in the government. And so anytime you have the majority making all the decisions, it doesn't always work out well. There are going to be many times when the majority of the people decide something that's actually not the best course of action for the country as a whole. In general, the majority of the people in a nation are going to be the more poor, um, uneducated, the people that are generally more unthinking, easier to be manipulated, and this often leads to demagogues coming into power who can sway the people. If you have an individual who speaks the way the people speak and says they want to do the same things the people want done, and usually they're more politically incorrect is how we would put it nowadays. They speak their mind and they're just kind of one of the people and the people can really relate to them and the people put him in power, the people give him even more power than he deserves to have, and it usually doesn't end up so well. Um, look at someone like Hitler, for example. It, it just, that doesn't really work out, oftentimes. Now, it's a tough call because there are these great advantages of a democracy, but maybe you are spreading the power a little too thin. Maybe those checks are a little too great because you, in a sense, have people who are not as aware of what's going on. They're not as skilled or specialized in the ways of governance and ruling. They're not really aware of what's going on in the world politically, with foreign trade or war tactics or all these different things. And yet they're the ones that are either directly making decisions or choosing who will make decisions for them. And the things that are going to be on their mind are not necessarily the things that are going to be in the best interest of the nation as a whole. Another aspect that would be a disadvantage of a democracy can easily be seen by this quote from Thomas Jefferson. He said, We in America do not have government by the majority. We have government by the majority who participate. And he was exactly right, and he still is today. And 
that's one of the other issues is that not only is it just the common people who aren't really skilled in governance that are making all the decisions, it's only a handful of those people. In America, for example, the current voter turnout rate is around 50% in national presidential elections. So if only half of those unqualified people are choosing who is going to run the country and how it's going to be ran, that's really not true representation of the country as a whole. So there actually are disadvantages to a democracy. The next form of government we will look at will be that of anarchy. Now, the anarchist movement is a more modern thing. It didn't really exist in a broad sense in ancient times. However, the word anarchy does come from a Greek word, and it has been traced back to early China and Taoism. And there are different times that this theme and this idea has sprung up over the centuries, even in ancient times. So it is definitely not a new idea, at least. Now, anarchy does mean no government. It means direct rule and direct choices by the people individually with no government or leader or decision makers that are above them. And generally nowadays, this is portrayed as being riots in the streets and looting and warlords that take over or corporations that run the world or, you know, whatever. It's pretty much always looked at as a very bad thing. Think of all the zombie apocalypse shows and movies that have come out. Generally, that's anarchy. And generally, it's every man for himself, people shooting each other for food. And, you know, it's this horrible situation. So let's start with the disadvantages of anarchy. And that is that you could have mass chaos. It it is possible because there are bad people in the world. People do make bad decisions and bad choices. And they may be able to inflict harm upon others and force upon others, and there would be no government to stop them or to hold them accountable. So this is the disadvantage. The disadvantage is the one that we are already aware of. We've already seen this in countless movies and shows, like I said, books, you know, all different sources. The advantages of anarchy are the ones that we don't usually hear about. So the advantage would be that you don't have the possibility for any government to take power over you and make decisions for you that you are not in agreement with. You are not going to have an absolute monarch who decides that their wealth and well-being is more important than all the people in the nation because that monarch doesn't exist. You are not going to have the people elect a representative who ends up being this fascist dictator because that never happens. You are not going to have this constitution that dictates exactly how everyone is to be governed and that could be changed or could be altered. Or even if it's not, it's very strict and restricts people's activities and choices. You're not going to have that. So the advantage is that people are free to make their own decisions, to make their own choices, and to do as they see fit without anyone restricting them. 
Another aspect to compare and contrast between democracy and anarchy would be that of the majority versus the minority. So in a democracy, like we talked about, it's the rule of the majority, and the majority wins. So whatever the majority wants, they get. Well, on the flip side of that, we have that problem where the minority, they didn't want, you know, said law or rule, but it's going to be forced upon them no matter what they want because the majority demanded it. So in an anarchist society, that will never happen because the majority may want something and they will get it. And the minority might want five different other versions, but they can also have those. So people and groups and communities end up following the rules and the customs and the pursuits that they deem necessary and that they desire, and they are free to do so. And other people's views will not be forced upon them And even if it's the majority of a group that might want something, the minority will still have all of their rights, and that majority view will not be forced upon them. Now, typically, when you have anarchy in practice, and if you look at it as more of a political philosophy, I would look at it more from the anarcho-capitalist perspective And that would be that you have a total free market capitalist society that has no official state. And so you have a stateless society, but you have complete open markets and free markets and a capitalist society where businesses are in operation, people are trying to make profit, people are trying to better themselves, you have probably private courts and You have private police forces and protection agencies and a lot of the stuff that, you know, we have nowadays, you'd still have. It's just all privatized. It's not public. And so that's more the form of anarchy that would be a little more realistic. Um, And that could be an advantage. Typically, a business or a private enterprise or a certain individual, especially a property owner, will take care of their property or their services or what they provide to others, they will take care of this in a much more efficient way, um, a much cheaper way, and usually a much more effective way than any government does. Historically, governments are always inefficient. They are always ineffective to some extent. They always have problems with their incentive models. And so if you get rid of all this and instead you have a more capitalistic society and incentive model, then it becomes clear what the advantages of anarchy are. There are other forms of government and types of government that we're not really going to go into into detail because most of the advantages and disadvantages are pretty obvious and we've already covered the bulk of it. But you do have dictatorships and totalitarianism and fascism, um, oligarchies. There are other forms and other types that could be interesting, but we don't really have the time to get into all of them here. Obviously, a dictatorship or fascism, these types of rule will have very similar attributes as a monarchy, except usually even worse because you don't have that hereditary property that gets passed along and you don't have that same incentive structure. So, yeah, there's that. But... 
The next two forms we will talk about will be groups of governments, not a specific government per se. The first is a federation. So a federation would be a central government that also has many different kind of semi-independent states underneath it. So you have these separate states, separate governments, that are under the control of one broad government. Now, this would be kind of like the model that the United States of America had early on, where you had the federal government, and it was in charge of the nation as a whole, but you did have these semi-autonomous states underneath that that could make a lot of their own laws, their own rules, their own regulations, and had a lot of their own power. So you had kind of a government within a government, but the federal government would always be in charge of everything as a whole. You also had kind of a similar model in some empires that existed. Let's say the Roman Empire, for example. There were many times over the course of the Roman Empire where they were in charge of many different regions and civilizations, even groups and cities and nationalities and races that the Roman Empire was just so big, they covered so much. But oftentimes what they would do is they would allow certain territories, certain states, certain governments to continue to perform as they were performing before. However, they would be subject to the Roman government as a whole. So as long as they followed what the Roman government said, and they followed the laws and the dictates that were put forth, then they were free to live their lives and govern their people as they see fit. So that was more of a federation model. The next model we'll look at will be a step further than a federation, and that's a confederation. So a confederation would be when the states actually keep their sovereignty, and they only delegate a very small amount and very broad powers to the central government. So instead of having a central government that is in more absolute control and just gives some freedom to the states, you have the states that more have absolute sovereignty and absolute control over themselves, and they just give up a very small amount of their freedom and power to a broad group. Now, the most obvious example nowadays would be the European Union, where all the countries involved in that are sovereign in and of themselves. They have their own laws, their own rules, their own governments. They, they do exist in and of themselves. And they only give a small amount of power to the European Union as a government itself. Now, it does have some broad powers, and it does put forth its own laws and regulations, but these are limited, and these are broad, and, you know, it's a lot harder to get many different sovereign nations to all agree on one thing. So there's only so much you can do there. But these are the two kind of conglomerates of governments, we could say, a federation or a confederation. And that does wrap up the different types of government that we will look at. Moving on to our next section would be that of political philosophy. Now, since we're talking about the origins of government as a whole and the history of government and the evolution of thought, 
we're going to look at more the early forms of political philosophy. And I want to focus on the times of ancient Greece, because we have a lot of influence that comes out of that time, especially out of the philosophers of the day. So the first thinker that we are going to look at is Plato. I'm sure everybody has heard of Plato, and he was a philosopher, and he had a lot of very influential ideas and thoughts and concepts that he put forth. Um, His book, The Republic, is probably the most influential work in the setting that we are talking about here in, in regards to political thought and government systems. Now, what Plato believed was that the people were not skilled enough or knowledgeable enough to take care of themselves, nor were they skilled enough or knowledgeable enough or educated enough to choose who would take care of them and make decisions for them. And because of this, Plato was very against democracies. He believed that you needed to have a single ruler or a group of rulers that were more philosopher kings, that had a love of knowledge. These were people that had a broad scope of knowledge, that knew many different things, that spent time thinking and contemplating, and who really had the best interest of the people in mind. That these people, these philosopher kings, they would be the best people to rule a society because they would have the skill and they would have the knowledge, they'd have the perspective, and they, in general, in Plato's mind, would have the ethical considerations of taking care of their society. And he believed that this was the ideal, that the people themselves, they just couldn't handle it, dealing with it on their own and ruling themselves, but a philosopher king would be great and be ideal. And that's what he argued for. Now, coming after Plato, we have Aristotle. And Aristotle kind of had some similar views. Um, He also had some differences. But what he thought was the ideal form of government was more of an aristocracy, where you, in a sense, had a rule of the best. So the best people in a society would be the ones to run that society. So similar to Plato, he believed that the commoners didn't necessarily have the skill or education per se, but neither necessarily did the nobles or the more wealthy or people in government already. Um, There was no reason to say that they were the best people for those roles. Now, they probably did have a better chance of being skilled and educated in these ways, but they still aren't guaranteed to be just because of their wealth or just because of their position or their power or their family. So what Aristotle believed is that you would have a group of the best people in a society, whether it be a peasant or a craftsman or a current government official or a wealthy noble or businessman or merchant, it didn't really matter. You would just have the best people in the society get together, have a group of them, and they would be the ones to rule that society. 
Now, of course, the question arises, how do you choose who's the best? And that would be the problem here. Um, it would depend on your society and how you set it up and, you know, what you believe. But anyway, that's what Aristotle believed, and that's what he argued for, was a rule of the best, an aristocracy here. Um, the final philosopher we'll look at will be Zeno, and he was the Stoic. So with Stoicism and the Stoic philosophers, they didn't necessarily care. They weren't really focused on government and politics. They were more focused on the individual. So they believed that everyone did have equal rights, that liberty was very important, that each individual should focus on simple living. So it wasn't really about what you had or what you did, what your profession was. None of this stuff really mattered. What mattered was that you are at peace with your condition and where you are, and that you weren't very emotional, that overall you were very virtuous, and that you did the right thing, that you were good to others, that you lived a good life yourself, and that you were content. So overall, the Stoics focused on the individual. Now, as far as they're concerned, you could have a monarchy or a democracy or a philosopher king. They really didn't care as long as those individuals, as well as the individuals in society, were living a good life, as long as they were content and they weren't infringing upon other people's rights. So you could have a government, you could even have no government. And if everybody acted this way, you wouldn't really have a need for a government because everyone would just be taking care of themselves and taking care of others and being kind and generous, and they didn't really need anything else. And so that was more of the Stoic philosophy, is that the individual is what mattered, and an individual's actions are what should be focused on. So that's the final political philosophy we will look at. Um, we're going to move on here. Overall, as kind of a recap of the past few sections, most governments are going to consist of many different philosophies and structures kind of mingled together. You're going to have a piecing together of multiple different types. So you're going to have a democracy with a constitution and you might have, um, on the other side of the world, a constitutional monarchy. Or you might have an aristocracy or an oligarchy somewhere that also is under a constitution that may also be a part of a confederation of states. And it just it could go on and on and get very complex. The point is, you can mix and match and mesh and mingle all these different philosophies and structures and systems together together. And that's generally what's done, and it's generally best, because if you want to put a check on the power of a monarch, then yes, putting a constitution in place is a good idea. But if you don't want the monarch in charge of the constitution, then maybe you add a democratic element to keeping some control over the ruler or over the constitution or both. Or maybe you also have this group of professionals, an aristocracy that holds some power in the government that that provides a skilled set of individuals to make decisions and to offer guidance. And so, as you can see, you can 
use these different types and these different systems to balance one another out. Now, you're probably never going to get a perfect system, but you can get better systems by using the advantages of these different types and using those advantages to cancel out the disadvantages of other types that are within your government. So that sums up everything we need to talk about regarding the origins of government. And now that we have done that, we are going to move on in our next episode and discuss the origins of money, where we'll take a similar dive into how money and the use of money and banking was first originated and created and how that sprung up and evolved out of early societies. We'll then look at the origins of education after that. And then we'll do an episode that covers the themes um, after we've done the specific dives into these three systems. We'll look at kind of what broad themes emerged, what trends were going on, and things of that nature that don't necessarily fit within the individual episodes, but are still important nonetheless as we build our understanding and our foundations in regards to these systems We really need to get this more historical knowledge down so that we can better assess our current systems. So I know these first few episodes are very history focused. If you're not a history person, then I'm sorry, Uh, please hang in there because this is important and there is a reason why I want to get this foundational knowledge down and how these different concepts evolved and thoughts and ideas that took place over the centuries and we need to get all this so that we can get to our modern day stuff and really be able to dig in and analyze how our systems affect us today so thank you very much for listening thank you for all your support please subscribe and rate and review the podcast so that this content will get out there to anybody that's looking for it Um, If you're willing to support us financially, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ourfoundations. You can also follow us on Twitter at foundationspc. And the other resource would be our website that is ourfoundations.podbean.com. So if you want to contact us directly, you can either do that through the Patreon page or you can email us. Anybody, feel free to email any questions or concerns or comments or debates or whatever. Um, And that is at ourfoundations at protonmail.com. So thank you again for listening. I hope you learned something and I hope that you come back next time and continue this journey of learning with us. So I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.